It was freezing. February up on the Colorado Plateau is not the warmest place, and it definitely wasn't the best time to begin this particular journey. The masses collected there were cold. They were barely clothed. They were tired. They were malnourished. And I cannot help but think that every single one of them must have been fearful, or at the very least, apprehensive. More than a few must have taken in some long, last looks around them, at the traditional home they were being forced from. The last year had been incredibly difficult, as slowly and methodically their enemy had closed in from every side. Finally, their collective will had just broken, as they realized there was no resistance, no escape, no winning. And so, they had gathered for this journey. Though many would be back eventually, when they started trudging eastward on that February morning, it must have seemed to the Navajo like the end of their world. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 45, The Long Walk. After spending a couple weeks watching politics and searching for gold in 1862 and 1863, we need to rewind the clock back once again while directing our attention back on Arizona's Amerindian tribes. But, surprisingly for us, we're not going to be talking about the Apache. Well, not yet at least. Instead, we are going to focus on Arizona's northeastern corner as we turn the spotlight on the Navajo. I've touched very lightly on the Navajo so far, mentioning them only a few times up till now and only in passing. You might recall from episode 33 that the Navajo are a branch of the Athapascan-speaking people that became the Apache, who are attested to in the Spanish documents going back to the 1630s. They were called Apache de Nabahu in these records, to distinguish them from the other Athapascan tribes moving into the area. They had adopted a lot of the ways of the Puebloan peoples they settled near, meaning that, unlike their distant Apache relatives, they engaged in more cultivation, raising wheat, corn, beans, squash, melons, and peaches. However, just like their distant Apache relatives, they also engaged in a lot of raiding, first on the Spanish, then on the Mexicans, and finally on the Americans. Unlike the Apache, however, who raided in order to trade away the animals for other goods, the Navajo kept most of the cattle, horses, and sheep they captured and added them to their own herds. The first governor of the territory of New Mexico attests that this gave the Navajo mind-blowing herd numbers, saying that collectively they had 30,000 head of cattle, 500,000 sheep, and 10,000 horses, mules, and donkeys. And it was not rare to find an individual with anywhere between 5,000 and 10,000 sheep and 400 to 500 head of cattle. Lieutenant William H. Emery, who we met as the U.S. commissioner that helped finalize the border with Mexico, characterized the Navajo as the Lords of New Mexico, both for their resources and their continual raids between the Zuni Pueblos and Santa Fe. Relations between the Navajo and the U.S. Army were never that great, 
always vacillating between wary coexistence and outright hostility. For those keeping track at home, you'll remember that Fort Defiance was put in the heart of Navajo country in 1851 in order to keep an eye on the tribe. Additionally, treaties were signed in 1852 and 1855 to keep the peace, but were generally unsuccessful. For a small walk down memory lane, I mentioned back in episode 35 that violence had broken out over accusations of cheating in a horse race, and that a group of fed-up Navajo had even attacked Fort Defiance in 1860. And, much like the Apache, Navajo raids continued, no matter how hard the army tried to play whack-a-mole with the various bands in the form of peace treaties. The problem was, once again, the decentralized nature of the Navajo structure. It's the same problem they were having with the Apache. To an American, they were all one people. But to an Apache or a Navajo, the treaty was only applicable between the men who had actually signed it. So it's no great surprise that violence would come a knockin' again sooner rather than later. In October 1861, the governor of New Mexico wrote that, though technically there was a peace on, the Navajos were committing daily depredations. His suggestion was typical for the times, in that he called for exterminating the Navajo by either, quote, the sword or by starvation, end quote. If that couldn't be achieved, he was magnanimous enough to accept that rounding them all up on a reservation was good enough, as long as a white farmer, blacksmith, and carpenter were assigned to teach them how to be a bit more civilized. In December 1861, this sentiment was seconded by General Canby, General Carleton's predecessor as the military commander for New Mexico. In a report to his superiors, he noted continual raiding by the Navajo, which he said was only inflamed by illegal raids from New Mexican citizens. The only way to really stop the vicious cycle, Canby said, was to send the Navajo to some distant reservation far away from white settlers where the government could, cough, cough, protect and assist them. When Canby left to go fight in the Civil War back east, this is the sentiment that he left to Carleton. So it shouldn't be that much of a surprise that Carleton, order-craving, moralizing, self-righteous, eager-to-fight-someone Carleton, seems to have really internalized this line of thinking. Soon after Carleton took over military command in the fall of 1862, he was called upon in Santa Fe by 18 Navajo leaders. This group wanted to talk to him about making a treaty to keep the peace and whatnot. You know, typical first-day stuff for the new guy in the office. According to author Ray C. Colton, Carlton responded rather coldly with, What do you want with a treaty? The chiefs naturally responded back with, That we may hereafter have peace. And here Carlton kind of lets loose on them, saying, quote, Go home. Stay there. Commit no more robberies or murders, and you have peace at once. Treaties confuse matters involving a double labor of making and breaking them. End quote. Well, that's not a very promising beginning, is it? The Navajo emissaries said that they had not refused any treaty before, and that they would return home and do their best to keep the young men, it's always the fault of those darn teenagers, you know, from making any more trouble. But, within a few weeks, more reports of raiding reached Carlton's desk. 
That might not have been the exact moment when the straw broke the camel's back, but it definitely caused some major spinal damage. Navajo leaders later informed Carlton that the majority of them were peaceful, and it was just a small number of them that was causing all the problem. To which the general replied that since his men could not distinguish between friend and foe, then the Navajo who claimed to be friendly should do everyone a favor and remove themselves to the reservation at Bosque Redondo. That would really help them know who the real bad guys were, wouldn't it? You can probably guess the Navajo's answer to that suggestion. But by this time, the camel was fully in traction and would never walk again. Carlton was dead set on removing the Navajo problem to Bosque Redondo and sent word via his commanders in the field in February 1863 that the Navajo had until July 20th to voluntarily pack up and move or things would get ugly. According to Colton, the Navajos responded with a lot of incredulity, noting that they had heard such big talk before and, quote, had listened for years to the cry of the wolf that came not. End quote. Turns out, though, that Carlton sent a wolf who not only howled, but had some teeth. Kit Carson. We last left Carson after he had, at Carlton's direction, coerced the Mescalero Apache to settle at Bosque Redondo on the Pecos River southeast of Santa Fe. But by February 1863, he was back in Santa Fe and actually tried to resign his commission. You'll see it written that he was weary. After all, he was in his 50s at this point and probably wanted to return to his home in Taos to be with his family. Another source says that Carson had signed up to fight rebels, not natives. However, it ultimately didn't matter because Carlton, in one dramatic retelling, ripped up Carson's letter of resignation. Turns out that the old mountain man, guide, and trapper was just the wolf he wanted to sick on the Navajo. On June 15, 1863, a little more than a month before the Navajo's deadline, Carlton set along orders for Carson to start four Fort Defiance with more than 700 men and a few pieces of artillery. With him, he also had the final ultimatum that read, quote, Say to them, go to Bosque Redondo, or we will pursue and destroy you. We will not make peace with you on any other terms. Included in his orders were instructions similar to the ones Carson had received during his campaign with the Mescalero Apache. That is, kill every Navajo man he found and capture every woman and child. Now, state historian Thomas Sheridan says something very interesting here. In his retelling of the Navajo campaign, he says, quote, Carson was not a brutal man, but he carried brutal orders, end quote. And that attitude about Carson is kind of general across the sources I've read. Though he was doing what can only be described as ghastly work, there's not a lot of people who want to put the blame on him. State historian Marshall Trimble says that, quote, Despite all his military successes, Carson was a reluctant campaigner, end quote. The mountain man had lived with the natives for a lot of his life. Though he never listed them in his official memoirs, Carson had been married at points to two different Amerindian women. Trimble goes so far as to say that he understood the plight of the Amerindians and was a staunch defender of them. You also see it written that Carson's heart was never really into what he was about to do. I mention all this because Carson is going to really bring the hammer down, but his motivations are really kind of unclear, 
at least to me. You can make the argument that Carlton was his friend and he was a staunch supporter of the Union, but he's also always been on good terms with the natives as well. The other argument is that he was just following the orders given to him, but that didn't work at Nuremberg, so I'm not sure it should now. Whatever his motivations for carrying out Carlton's will, Carson arrived at Fort Defiance on July 20th, 1863. Time was up for the Navajo. At the fort, he was fortified by a band of Ute scouts who were eager and willing to take the fight to the Navajo, who were a traditional enemy. Now, if you are expecting a series of large-scale battles, I'm afraid you are going to be disappointed. As Colton points out, the Navajo were in no position to really defend themselves against a large-scale invasion. They did not possess that many rifles or revolvers and only had a smattering of ammunition that they had managed to trade for. They also were still mostly subsistence farmers, which meant that any interruption to their planting season was going to cause a lot of problems. So it looks like we're back to guerrilla tactics. And hey, if you look back at episode 14, we learned where that term came from. Carson moved forward roughly 20 or so miles west of Fort Defiance and set up a new forward operating base named Fort Canby. A few days later, as they were heading back to Fort Defiance, the Utes killed eight Navajo men, making 12 that had been killed since the July 20th deadline. The Utes, who either accompanied the army or acted as their own unit, are really going to be Carson's ace in the hole, being effective trackers, marksmen, and expert horsemen. And they apparently like their job. Here are just two samples of their activities. On August 11th, the Ute scouts would report that since the beginning of the month, they had killed 33 Navajo, captured 66 more, and had taken roughly 30 horses and 2,000 sheep. On September 5th, they reported having killed 9 people and having captured 40 children. And with the Utes, we also get this darkly humorous exchange between Carson and Carlton, where Carson asked that his Ute scouts be allowed to keep any captives they took, as had been the custom for hundreds of years now. He argued, quote, I am satisfied that the future of the captives disposed of in this manner would be much better than if sent even to Bosque Redondo, as a general thing, the Utes dispose of their captives to Mexican families, where they are fed and taken care of, and thus cease to require any further attention on the part of the government. End quote. However, Carlton, as an upstanding moral Victorian gentleman, was quick to shoot down this ancient custom. He sent back a curt order saying that any and all captives were to be passed along to Santa Fe and ultimately Bosque Redondo. As I said, the Navajo and the army never really engaged in battle. The campaign turned into a lot of running around and tracking, with skirmishes here and there. The Navajo did have a bit of success with their guerrilla tactics, usually in driving off sheep, goats, horses, and mules from the army. According to Colton, once they stole goats from Fort Canby and actually ate them just outside of gunshot of the fort. I'm going to guess that the army didn't discover that fact until later. It's also reported that they even managed to steal Carson's favorite horse. Of course, it wasn't all fun, games, and goat eating. Navajo killed soldiers, and soldiers killed Navajo during all these engagements. But battle wasn't really what Carson was going for. 
Though his troops were seeking the Navajo out, he fell back on a scorched earth campaign to bring them into submission. Now, believe it or not, Trimble actually highlights this tactic as an example of Carson's sympathy for the natives. His orders were to kill anyone that resisted, Trimble argues, so bringing them to their knees through hunger was slightly more humane. I'm not entirely sure I buy that argument, uh, but I wanted to pass it along. Trimble also says that the Navajo leaders later recorded that they respected Carson as a warrior, but the burning of their orchards was something they could not forgive. The first step in this plan came on July 24th, soon after Carlton's deadline, when soldiers cut down the wheat and corn in several fields. An estimate says that the soldiers eliminated what could have grown into 75,000 pounds of wheat. And just to add insult to injury, the immature plants were hauled back to Fort Canby, where they were fed to the Army's animals during the winter. Carson later reported to Carlton that on one trip in early August, the soldiers had killed three Navajo, taken 24 more captive, and destroyed 187 acres of corn and 15 acres of wheat. And the reports go on and on like this. In the words of Sheridan, quote, The soldiers burned Navajo cornfields, slaughtered their sheep, and confiscated their cattle and horses. End quote. Not content with what Carson was doing up in Arizona, Carlton also ordered other officers in New Mexico to follow up on Navajo raids in the mountains around Albuquerque and other hotspots. In all these cases, the orders were the same. Kill every single man that resisted. Everyone else was to be rounded up and transferred to Bosque Redondo. At one point, Carson related to Carlton that rumor had it the Zuni were helping Navajos avoid being rounded up. So the order came down that, if necessary, six prominent Zuni leaders should be captured and held as hostages, with additional threats to destroy Zuni villages if they didn't knock it off. Thankfully, that wasn't necessary as when Carson visited the Zuni, they seemed well disposed toward the army and even reported that they had killed several Navajo. As you can imagine, all this began to take an incredibly heavy toll. We've been covering it in a very academic sort of way, but the Navajo were literally being hunted, killed, and burned out of their homeland. Statistics for all of 1863 show that between all of New Mexico and Arizona, 301 Indians had been killed across different campaigns, with 703 captured and 87 known to have been wounded. Now, compare those numbers with the 33 soldiers or civilians killed during the same time, with only 29 wounded. The Scorched Earth campaign was a brutal tactic, but it began to have the desired effect. By the end of the summer and into early fall, small groups of Navajo began to straggle into Fort Canby to voluntarily surrender. During the first week in September 1863, Carlton informed his superiors that an initial group of 51 Navajo men, women, and children were being sent to Bosque Redondo. In October, a delegation of Navajo leaders was sent to Fort Wingate, near modern Gallup, to treat for peace. They were met with the same ultimatum that had launched the campaign, either go to Bosque Redondo or be destroyed. Carlton's orders also included, quote, You have deceived us too often and robbed and murdered our people too long to trust you again at large in your own country, 
This war shall be pursued against you if it takes years, until you cease to exist or more. End quote. But the campaign could not truly end until the army had taken Canyon de Chez. The canyon, a truly awe-inspiring piece of nature's handiwork, is shaped like the talon of a hawk and had been carved over the eons by creeks and washes. At its start, the sandstone walls are roughly 30 feet high, but as you travel deeper into the canyon from both ends, they rise to be more than a thousand feet tall. Canyon de Chez had been home to Amerindians for hundreds of years, if not thousands. We first touched on it very briefly while talking about the ancestral Puebloans back in episode 4. Given how remote it is and the towering walls, it was considered impregnable. So it's no wonder the Navajo retreated to this spot and that Carson had to devise a way to take it. In early January 1864, Carson took some 375 men to the canyon's western opening, while at the same time another force approached the eastern end. A heavy snow had fallen, making progress even more difficult, and Carson spent a few days sending scouting parties along the canyon's rims, having skirmishes with several Navajo along the way. Meanwhile, the force at the eastern end of the canyon actually rode into it, braving the elements and the likely ambushes. This group was harassed by Navajo living in fortifications built into the canyon walls, who would scream, shoot arrows, and throw rocks at the troops from hundreds of feet up. Using their superior firepower to help make it through, this group of soldiers actually managed to get through all 30 miles of the canyon to link up with Carson more or less without serious incident. Emboldened by this, another force went into the canyon a couple days later, where they began to burn crops, including a large number of peach trees, while repeating the warnings to the now-starving Navajo that they should surrender before it was too late. Like the rest of the campaign, there was no pitched battle to take the canyon, but there didn't need to be. More than a hundred Navajo gave themselves up after this demonstration that the army could waltz through the not-so-impregnable canyon whenever it wished. After this, the Navajo fighting spirit was more or less broken. From that point on, they surrendered in droves of hundreds. By the end of January, so less than two weeks after the maneuvers through Canyon de Chez, Carson reported that he had more than 500 Navajo ready to transport. By the end of February, there were 2,500 at Fort Canby ready to head to Bosque Redondo. Believe it or not, it's only here that things actually get pretty dark. More than 8,500 Navajo were forced to emigrate to Bosque Redondo, a 300-mile walk from their ancestral homes. And yes, please note that I said walk. Also remember, most of these people had been half-starved while holding out against the army's advance, so they weren't in that great of shape to begin with. Then, let's not forget that most of them weren't properly prepared for such a long, tiring journey. And by that, I don't mean they didn't have enough snacks or water with them, though, yeah, they didn't, but rather that they didn't even have adequate clothing. Finally, just for the kicker, it's still the middle of winter when they were forced to make this trek. Roughly 200 Navajo are going to die en route, with more dying after reaching Bosque Redondo. 
and traditional accounts among the Navajo revealed the brutal conditions and apathy of the soldiers escorting them. One of the more famous anecdotes has a woman about to give birth who falls behind the rest. Her parents ask for the army to stop in order to let her deliver the child, but the soldiers refuse. They are falling behind the rest, and the parents are told they just have to abandon their daughter because, according to the soldiers, she's going to die anyway. The daughter actually convinced her parents to keep trudging on and that she would be alright, but just a short time later, they both heard a gunshot from where they had last seen her. Like I said, things got dark. No wonder then that this incident has lived long in the Navajo consciousness as the Long Walk. And their destination? Turns out it was no picnic ground. Now, Bosque Redondo is not some desolate wasteland. In fact, Carlton had actually ticked off a bunch of ranchers because they couldn't graze in that spot anymore. However, concerns about the quality and amount of both water and firewood had been raised by officers from the beginning. It also didn't help that Carlton hadn't really believed Carson about the potential to have more than 8,000 Navajo march to the reservation, and so he hadn't secured enough rations for them. Since Carlton had only expected somewhere closer to 5,000, the number that showed up proved to be too much for the Bosque Redondo site, which was only about 40 square miles. Now, let's add to this a horde of other problems like smallpox, that scourge of Amerindians since the first arrival of Europeans, which killed more Navajo, while cutworms and a slew of irrigation problems killed crops. Then there was the additional wrinkle that there were already hundreds of Mescalero Apache living at Bosque Redondo when the Navajo arrived. And, wouldn't you know it, the Mescalero and the Navajo were also longtime enemies. So, effectively, the U.S. government had just thrown a bunch of dogs and cats together on a restricted piece of land without thinking it through. All of these deplorable conditions actually seemed to have affected Carlton, who wrote to his superiors begging for more federal assistance, saying that thousands could die if it was not granted. He would actually write, quote, With other tribes, whose land we have acquired ever since the pilgrims stepped on shore at Plymouth, this has been done too often. For pity's sake, if not moved by any other consideration, let us, as a great nation, for once treat the Indian as he deserves to be treated. End quote. I have to say, that's pretty lofty rhetoric coming from the same guy who told them to come to the reservation or be destroyed. Now, Congress did respond with an additional $100,000 in federal funding to send supplies, but it was too little too late. By 1868, it was apparent to everyone that the reservation was just not working. The government signed a treaty with the remaining Navajo that allowed them to once again return to their territorial homeland, with some provisions such as receiving federal rations and being forced to send their children to schools. The reservation may have been a failure, but the campaign against the Navajo had broken the fighting spirit of the Lords of New Mexico. We are going to return to Amerindian matters next week, as they constitute so much of what is happening in Arizona at this time. I had originally planned for us to follow up with Cochise and the Apache in this episode, but their story will have to wait until next time, when we can turn our full attention back to the seething, white-hot mutual animosity between the Apache and the Union soldiers. But before I leave you this week, I did want to bring something to your attention. You see, 
in two weeks from when this episode airs, it will be February 14th. And as I hope you are well aware, that means it will be Arizona's 109th birthday. It also means that our humble little podcast will also be a year old. While thinking of something special to do to celebrate the podcast's birthday, I decided to throw the doors open to you, the readers, for a bit. So what I'm asking for is any questions you might have about the podcast itself, Arizona history in general, or what we've covered so far, etc. I would love to read and talk about what you guys have to say. You can either send me your questions on social media. I remember that I'm on Twitter and Facebook under the handle at azhistorypod. Or you can reach me via email at david at azhistorypodcast.com. I'm still toying with the format for the February 14th episode, so I won't guarantee that I'll spend the entire time on questions, but I thought it was a nice chance for us to come together for a bit and celebrate both Arizona and the fact that we've been taking this journey together for a year. I look forward to hearing from anyone out there who is interested. Just make sure to get your questions to me by February 9th. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ the history of Arizona. Goodbye.